Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's the last inch that I won't give up. You know, like I'm not necessarily courageous, um, but I am defiant, you know, and that, that's like, you know, and, and those are those are wildly different positions. And, and, and even in terms of stance, like combative stance, like that's wildly different. A courageous person leans in, right? They're going in for the fucking punch. They're, they're running right up to the enemy. I don't know that I'm that. You know, I don't know that I'm that. But at the, at, like, I am at the very, like, dig your heels in. Like, that last inch, I won't give up. I will not give up. The last inch of my life is mine. The la- and I've had a few of these moments in my life where I don't have the courage to fight, but I do have the bravery to stick in my fucking heels and no matter what happens i'm not going to give up that last inch i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art for more check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative is brought to you by our friends at HostGator, your one-stop shop for all your web hosting needs. As I mentioned on Monday, it's the beginning of the year, and maybe you have a lot of ideas for new projects on your plate, and one of the best first steps is to set up a website and buy a domain name. It's actually how a lot of our creative projects here at Unmistakable Creative began. HostGator gives you 24-7 live support via chat, phone, and email, and they even have an easy-to-use website builder. But let's say you're really hardcore and you want to build your own website. They even provide a one-click WordPress install, and they can help with your marketing if you need it. For Unmistakable Creative listeners, they're offering a 30% discount on all their hosting packages. So visit HostGator.com creative and use the promo code creative to get 30% off. And remember, the best way to support the show is to support our sponsors. Now, let's get to the show. AJ, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Very welcome, man. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, my friend. Well, uh... You know, it is really, really cool to have you back here, uh, especially because we haven't actually had you on the show since the name was changed to Unmistakable Creative. And, you know, I, I've always said you're easily one of the most influential people in my life and had a, a huge impact uh, on the way I've gone about my work, uh, you know, in getting me to think a lot less like a marketer and much more like an artist. But since you were last year, um, you know, our show has grown quite a bit and there's a lot of new listeners. So on that note, for the people in our audience who, who may not know about you and your story, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led to everything that you're up to now? Sure. I mean, first of all, I just want to say 
thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Um, and you know, as far as you saying me as you know me being an influential person in your life, Srini, you know, I'm just a gypsy from New York City. So <laughs> any a- anybody saying anything like that about me, man, that's um, it's it's an honor and it and it means the world to me. So I appreciate it. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of start from the beginning with, with my journey and then you can kind of curtail me as, as we go on and let, and let me know, you know, where you want me to, uh, where you want me to go if I ramble on too much. But basically, um, you know, I'll, I'll start from the very, very beginning when, when I was, um, when I was in high school, I was basically, a, I was a kid, I was a, I was a bit of a punk. I was a kid who almost got thrown out of high school uh, a few different times. Um, and in the end, I was just a jock. I was a guy who could put a nine-inch ball into an eighteen-inch hoop. And towards the end of my high school career, I had thought to myself, like, okay, you know, maybe I should consider going to university. And uh, I'd started looking up uh, pamphlets and whatnot. And I was, I was, you know, I was getting offers from different places to um, to play basketball in university. And uh, there was one particular college I was looking at. I went to my high school guidance counselor and I asked her. Hey, you know, do you think um, it's funny because Melissa and I and my wife have been together for so long. She was there in the room with me at the time. And I asked uh, my high school guidance counselor, um, you know, what do you think about this university? What do you think about, you know, me going to study there? And she kind of stopped me right in the middle and she said, hey, hey, AJ, AJ, listen, a guy like you should really, you know, not focus on going to university. You should consider... Um, going to trade school and maybe becoming a mechanic, and she hands me this pamphlet to um, to a trade school to become a mechanic. Now, nothing wrong with any um, with mechanics or or with that career. I've got a lot of friends who are happy mechanics. I actually do, uh, but that is not what you want to hear when you're 17 years old, uh, trying to decide what your life will be. And, and what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And that from that moment, that was uh, Miss Mitchell, who was my high school guidance counselor. She, she was representative of a great litany, a chorus of people who had told me what a fuck up I was going to be in my, entire, in, in my life. And it, it, something snapped in me. And I just thought to myself, we, you know, fuck you, Miss Mitchell, <laughs> and and fuck everyone who had ever thought that I was going to be a drug dealer in life, or that I was going to be a fuck up in life, or that I wasn't going to amount to anything. And from that moment on, I resolved myself to ensure that that my life would be of value, and that I would be able to prove all of these people wrong. And there were so many people in my life that fit that bill, and that had that had kind of invested that sort of language in me for so many years. And, um, you know, I did get into university, uh, uh, you know, good for me. I ended up getting into that particular university, which Ms. Mitchell uh, said that, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I shouldn't even try to try to get into. Um, I mean, I squeaked in. Um, and then once I was in, I, I decided to myself, you know what, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I focused entirely on academics. 
Uh, I remember at the age of 18, right before I entered university, I was looking at majors and stuff and I had never, you know, I didn't have anybody guiding me in terms of what you should study or I didn't have any sort of influences in that regard, but I was just paging through in, in Anna Barnes and Nobles when those still existed, this book that showed you majors and then the only thing that it was a graph. It was a graph book, so it would show you a particular line of study, and then it would show you earning potential over time. Uh, so was, I was just looking for up and to the right. You know, as an unsophisticated eighteen-year-old, how do you derive the value or the definition of sex of, of success other than um, other other than money? Right. I mean, that is that money and fame, and that is all that you have at seventeen or eighteen years old in order to give you the, the the sort of parameters of what success is. So I looked in that book and I paged through and I found accounting and finance and I realized that, wow, you know, in, in a finance game and accounting and finance, you can make, you know, as much money you can as, as you could possibly want. That was where I should focus my attention. So I ended up going to university. I graduated uh, number one in my class, summa cum laude with a 4.0 um, GPA. Uh, and towards the end of my university career, um, I, I had, you know, basically every offer from any firm that, that I wanted to, uh, consulting firms, auditing firms, uh, some of the big four PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture and whatnot. I ended up taking the biggest offer from the largest firm, uh, that was offering. I didn't care where I would work. I, where I would be working or who I'd be working for. All I cared was about how many zeros were at the end of my signing bonus. Um, I took I took that offer and then I spent basically the majority of my early 20s making vertical leaps from one firm into the other in order to extract even more earning potential over time, uh, which landed me to a place where, and as you well know, Srini, because you and I have talked about it for you know a few times, um, I was in my mid twenties. Um, I was in in Manhattan, in New York City, uh, at a corner office, overlooking the entire city. Um, I was making an absurd amount of money. I had an even higher bonus, um, and you know the I, the only problem was you know it was this tiny infinitesimal problem I had in my life, which was I I I hated my life. And I hated everything that I had been doing up until that point, but I had no way out, you know. Because once you once you start going down a path, particularly at you know in in, in terms of youth, and at, at at a very young age, once you start navigating down a path, it's very difficult to figure out. Well, how do I? How did I even get here in the first place? So it, that led me to a place on December thirty first, two thousand seven, at you know, in the middle of a pretty successful career by any stretch of the imagination uh, in New York, um, my boss uh, calls me into his, uh, his office and he told me, hey, you know, you're, you're getting this promotion. And I knew that we, he and I had talked about it before, but this was it. Like, you're, you're getting it. You know, the new year is starting. You got this promotion we've been talking about. Uh, obviously, it came with a pay raise. It came with more kind of credence, more everything. In a finance game in New York City, it basically meant that I meant it. As long as I shut the fuck up and follow the rules for the next 40 years, I'm going to be straight. You know, I, like, I, I'm good financially which is that game that I was involved in. 
And I kind of took this news and I walked out of his office and I walked back into my own, which is right down the hall. And I closed the door behind me and I just started weeping because I realized that I was trapped. And I realized that there was no way ever that I would ever be able to walk away from that type of money again. And any idea that I had of living a life of adventure, of meaning, of purpose was gone. And every concept, every dream that I had in a moleskin that sat in my desk for many, many years was dead. And that I would relinquish my life up until the fates of this world that I had inherited. And, and it was profoundly depressing. And, and I know now, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now, and you know, I'm not a young man, 33 years old. I know, I'm old enough now to know that, like, that's very cinematic, but that's my life. So that was the most depressing m- moment of my life. And, and I sat there, and I wept, and I wept for a long time, man. And, and I saw, and this is the only time this has ever happened to me in my entire life. I saw a vision of myself then, um, as, as a 70 year old man looking back at me at that moment, mourning the glory of this life that, that could have been. And, and that was it. You know, I mean, my life was, was scripted and it, and it was finished. And, and I just kept that, this, 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 you know, somber, you know, bone chilling depression hit me. And it had been building up for quite some time. And as I sat with that for quite a few moments, nothing else had ever occurred into my mind. Like, but basically, in my mind, it was like, I was done. Serenity, I was like, I was finished. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it ju- I just snapped. And this one thought occurred to me. That you always have a choice, actually. And that I could walk out right then and right there and I could leave everything that I had ever known, everything that I had ever fought for. I could leave my career. I could burn all the bridges in my career. I could leave my academic history. Everything that took me from that moment as a young man in a very successful career back to the moment when Miss Mitchell was telling me basically what a fuck-up I was going to be I could take that entire, all that baggage, that plight, that anger and vitriol that even led me to that moment because that enti- I mean, the impetus was polluted. The moment that I started on that ascent was not about me. It was about proving everybody wrong. So when, when the seed is polluted, everything that comes after it, everything, all the progeny of it is, is, is going to be perverted. Uh, and, there, and, the, and that was my life. And I could leave that all behind right then and there. I could walk out and I could start fresh. I could start with nothing. And, and I do just want to caveat, and this is you know, just a caveat because many people are like, oh, well, you were in banking, well, you left, you had a ton of money. This is four days before my wedding that I left. It was December 31st, 2007. I got married on January 4th, 2008. Four days before my wedding. I had a ring that I paid for. I had a honeymoon that I paid for. I had a wedding that I paid for. And I was stupid and young and in finance in New York City in 2008. I had no money. You spend more than you earn. I had nothing financially. I was broken. And, and I, all of this was washing in my mind. All of this was kind of 
ruminating and marinating in my, in my young mind at the time. But all that I recognize is that if I took this, if I took this deal, if I signed it and I moved on, that I would be that guy for the rest of my life. And the prospect and the, the, the premise of living a life that was somebody else's was much more, I mean, the fear of that was much more prevalent than the fear of how I was going to pay rent the next month. So I, I, I grabbed my stuff. I, I walked out the door. I did walk into my boss's office, and he got the tail end of a Shakespearean soliloquy about the system and, <laughs> and about the way, the, the, the way that things should be. And, and, uh, and then I walked out. I walked out to the elevator, and, and I, took, you know, I, I, I took the elevator down the street. And for the first time, when I hit the street, people hear me say this, and I know it sounds cinematic, but the reality, and I always say this, this is my life. That was the first time in my adult life that I recognized that I was free. And everything that I've done from here on out. So if any, any of you know your listeners, anybody goes and checks out what Misfit is or whatever. I mean, all of that was born not from a desire to start a company or to leave one company to another. I, I wasn't smart like that. I'm not like Pam Slam. I'm not side hustling all. You know, I'm not one of those people. I I was just evacuating a life plan gone horribly wrong um, to pursue a life of intention of meaning and purpose and a life that at the very least was flamboyantly mine. And that was, that, 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 that's the, that at least the impetus of my story. I don't know. I might've rambled on a bit too much there. <laughs> oh, this is why I'm so glad that we got to have you back here. Uh, so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, so, you know, I want to do something that I haven't gotten to do with you before, sure, uh, man. which is to go even further back into the story prior to the Miss Mitchell moment. Uh, and ask you about things that happened in your childhood growing up uh, that you feel were formative experiences that influenced, um, you know, the way you chose to live your life later on. Sure. Sure. Um, any, anything specific or just, just random? In general. Run? I mean, I, I do have one specific that I want to ask you about that I haven't gotten to yet, but uh, in general, I'd be curious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, childhood is a very long time. I think I... You know, I had an interesting childhood. My father passed away when I was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. That was probably very, you know, I mean, I know that was very formative for me. Um, We moved around a little bit um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, You know, but there were some poignant moments that I look back at and and I remember, I mean, my dad was, was a, I mean, just a fantastic man, a fantastic man. Um. But early on in his life, he had a really, really rough life. And, and I've never talked about this before publicly, actually. But um, my dad was involved in the – he was, he was a, a cocaine dealer um, in Southern California. And he used, to, he used to run drugs across the border. And actually, there's a lot of friends of mine that are lawyers that if they look up Leon versus the United States Supreme Court – They'll find out that my dad's final, you know, this final case that put him in prison for quite a while, um, that it changed um, search and seizure laws in the United States. It was actually, a, you know, it was a, quite a big deal. Um, and so, I mean, that was like, that was in the, er- the early, early, early days of, of me, as, me as a young man. And my dad had a really spiritual experience when he was, um, when he was in prison 
And he ended up getting out of prison and leaving his life cold turkey, leaving that former life cold turkey, um, which is fantastic. And that was probably when I was four or five. And then he died when I was 14. So there's this pocket of time that I had him, you know, as this really formidable character in my life. And there's so many moments that, that I remember my dad, you know, kind of teaching me things. And there was one particular time <laughs> that I, wa- I walked into, uh, it was when I was like nine years old. So I was four, you know, six years before he, um, five years before he passed away. Um, and just a few years after all that, that I had mentioned, and I was, and I walked into his office and I, I was talking about some, you know, car, this, this, uh, remote control car that I remember this is the eighties. So that was a big thing. Now kids are into fucking drones and whatever the <laughs> fuck, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, any, any, any millennial that's listening to this is like, what the fuck? A remote control car. But like, I was, I was so about this remote, remote control car that I wanted, and I came in and I was like, Dad, you know, blah, blah, and I, And he's like, no, 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 yeah, yeah. You know, later on, later on, you know, just come back in like, you know, a couple hours. And he was working at the time. And then I came back and and he was, and he's like, no, 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 come back in another half an hour. And then I came in, I came in again to the office. And after this happened two or three times when he just kept on, you know, shoving me off. And I came back in. And then finally he turns around and he's like, and he looks at me and he's like, can't you see that I'm working, boy? Can't you see that I'm trying to get things done right now? And you keep on coming. You, you're interrupting me. And he just screamed at me for like seven minutes. Now, this is my dad who was, you know, you're not involved in the, the drug trade in Southern California in the 70s and 80s without being a tough guy. This is, you know, my dad's a, a big, you know, burly motherfucker. So it's very scary for this guy to yell, you know. And it was mortifying. And I kind of just, you know, shrunk back and my little heart was broken. And I started to walk out of my dad's office. And then right before I closed the door behind me, he grabs my shoulder through the crack in the door. He rips me right close to him. He grabs the back of my neck. He pulls it right up into, he pulls my face right into his face so that my eyes are like beating right into the back of his and he looks at me and he says, listen to me, son, and listen to me well. You never, ever, ever stop asking. You never, ever stop going until you get exactly what you want. You don't listen to me. You don't listen to anybody. You understand me? And I just sat there. And even at that age, I could understand the profundity of that statement in the midst of everything that had happened. And he's and 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 that was it. He kind of just let me go, you know, from that moment. He gave me a big hug, and he let me go. And you know, ever since that that moment in my life, at a very young age, I you know, I've always kind of, no matter what challenge was ahead of me, no matter what. I was interested in or what I really wanted to go after, you know, you keep on going till you get exactly what you want. And, and that was something my dad taught me at a young age, which I've never really talked about before. Okay. So two questions come from that. 
The first is uh, around overcoming environments. Uh, I mean, you could have easily ended up in a life of crime when you had a dad that was incarcerated, and yet you didn't. Your path was literally the exact opposite. Uh, So I'm wondering, you know, what it is that enables that. Do you think that that is inherently built into certain people like you, uh, or can it be learned, and if so, how? And then the other question is around overcoming significant losses in our lives. Because I can't fathom the amount of grief that the loss of a father would create, uh, you know, especially for somebody that was as young as you are when it happened. Uh, so I'm just really curious how you navigated that period uh, after your father's death. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Um, well, on, on the one end, I think that, you know, I think, you know, my... my my dad was a reformed dude when when he ended up coming out of prison. Now he wasn't alive for much longer after that, but he was he was a a good person, a good human, and I think that certainly helped, you know. Um, and on you know, in terms of dealing with the death of somebody that's that close to you, you know, it's very difficult. Particularly, it depends on you know. I mean, in a in a Cuban household. It's very patriarchal. So, you know, it is the father figure is not just, you know, a father. It is like it's the patriarch, right? I mean, there's a lot of cultures that are like that where it's so centered around this and that's where your your hope lies and that's where the strength lies and all that. Um, it's, it, I mean, for me in particular, it was very, very, very difficult to to overcome that. But I recognized even at a young age, and I was 14 when, when he died, it was, he died, um, 13 days after my 14th birthday. Um, I had about a year of pretty profuse depression. Um, it was pretty significant depression. Um, but I'll tell you towards the end of this year, I, I was, I was playing basketball, um, and I met this guy that I'd been introduced to. His, his name was Ernest, young kid, really super nice guy. Uh, and he was the first person from, from the continent of Africa that I'd ever met before. And, you know, 14 fucking years old. I mean, when, when, I mean unless you go to multicultural, you know, like when are you going to get that? And he, I can't remember, it was somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, might have been Sudan. Uh, so young that I can't, you know, countries and stuff, you know, at that time, you know, you're an idiot. And so what the fuck do you know? And I remember, you know, during that year feeling really, really, I mean, just broken and sorry for myself for everything that had happened to me. And it wasn't just my dad, it was a few things or whatever. And then I met Ernest and Ernest and I were, were, were shooting together, playing basketball and I asked him about his family and this. And he's like, oh, no, I don't. You know, I lost my family. I'm like, oh, what do you mean, Ernest? And he was like, oh, well, um, a couple months ago, um, these people, militants, came into my village. And they killed my father. And they raped my mother. And they killed my siblings. And I was hiding in a corner so they didn't find me. And they left me alone. And then he had been rescued from that, from I believe it was the UN, and then ended up through some magical sequence of events making his way 
to the United States. Um, it, was, it was a few months in between those two episodes. And that, all of a sudden, there was, you know, <laughs> a heavy dose of perspective that was injected in my life, you know what I mean? Because, I, I mean, I was dealing with what I considered a significant lie. And for me, in my context, it certainly was. But the moment that you encounter somebody else in a completely different context, that that's like, I mean, I couldn't even fathom going through what Ernest went through. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that changed um, that, that, that changed my perspective. And it helped kind of tilt my eyes a bit more towards the horizon and, 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 and towards, you know, hope and, and almost gratitude that, yeah, that, I mean, this is a horrible situation to have ha- had happened to me, but fuck, there are people out there with so much worse. And that's not an abstract statement once you meet somebody in that position. You know what I mean? Why then do you think that we can be equally consumed by grief and shit and horrible things when our suffering is nowhere near the magnitude of that? And I'm asking this for personal reasons. Uh, I, I don't – well, I mean I don't think it's bad that, that we're actually – I mean so, so there's a level of – that was a moment that I had, right? And that was a poignant moment that I believe – you know, serendipitously, providentially, even maybe I needed at that time, right? We all have to deal with the plight of our own existence. And that existence is gonna is gonna be different and it's gonna be tempered differently. And the context of that existence will depend on where we grew up, where we were born, and all that. I don't necessarily believe in the sense that we don't you, you don't deal with that existence because you have to, you know, you 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 always uh uh, have to um, kind of be 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 not not only cognizant but s- always discussing the fact that another existence is is there or 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 exists in the world that is much worse than your own you know so i mean it's it's difficult so like i don't i don't, i mean i think that like there's a lot of people in the western world that grew up in, in the developed world and you, and we grew up with easier lives than than people obviously that that grew up say in, in uh, some dire parts in south sudan mm-hmm. you know having said that if you don't have interactions with people if you've never had an interaction with a person from that area then then it's not you wouldn't necessarily even a really truly inc- you know like have, synthesize that you know what i'm saying you wouldn't necessarily interact with that and I don't think that that uh, you know I I, I'm, I I don't place judgment on on any one of us, myself included, that that deals with the content. You know, I mean, w- look at the end of the day, I was a fourteen fucking year old kid that my dad died. I was sad. You know what I'm saying? I was I was sad and I was hurt. And there are people that have it far worse than me. And that moment with Ernest that I'm very grateful for. And I've never met Ernest since, and there was no internet at the time, so like there was no way of keeping in contact with Ernest. <laughs> you know, like there, I wish I could contact Ernest and tell him like what a profound moment that was. I only met him that one day, and it was such a profound moment for me. Um, you know, but at the same time, 
I'm a 14 year old kid that like you know no matter how you slice it that's fucked up you know the, that you have a scenario like that happen so I don't think it's about judgment being placed um, depending on where you are I think context helps you know I think it certainly it certainly helps um, and I'm speaking in particular to a moment that I had you know and I think we all have those moments in different ways you know. There's more of my conversation with AJ after this short message from our sponsors. Our first sponsor for today's episode is HostGator, your one-stop shop for all your web hosting needs. It's the beginning of the year, and you might have a lot of ideas for new projects on your plate. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, one of the best first steps is setting up a website and buying a domain name. This is how just about every creative project we do starts. We build a simple website to see if anybody's interested before putting countless hours into making something that nobody wants. And I think that's an essential part of being a prolific creator. HostGator gives you 24-7 live support via chat, phone, and email, and they even have an easy-to-use website builder. And if you're really hardcore, they have one-click WordPress install so you can design your own site, and they'll even help with your marketing if you need it. For unmistakable creative listeners, they're offering a 30% discount on all their hosting packages. So visit hostgator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative. Our other sponsor is TrueCar. There are probably a lot of different things you want to do with your life this year. And let's be honest, buying a car is kind of a pain in the ass. You go from website to website, dealer to dealer, and by the time you get home, you're so sick of looking around that you just want it to be over with. Here's a fun little psychology lesson to go with all of this. This zaps your willpower because you spent your day making a bunch of useless decisions. And yes, Deciding where to go to look for cars is a decision, and you spend all your willpower on something that could have been spent on something meaningful. TrueCar shows you what others in your area have paid for a car. It's total transparency that enables you to determine the price for the vehicle you want to buy. So not only can you get a good deal, you no longer have to spend so much time in the car buying process. Think about all those steps that you don't have to deal with anymore. And that means you can finally write that book you've been putting off, learn that language you've been wanting to learn, or learn to cook. More time for the things that actually add meaning to your life. With TrueCar, you can see what others pay. TrueCar, never overpay. Now, back to my conversation with AJ. All right, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Uh, I want to go to that Miss Mitchell moment, and I want to ask you two things about sure. it. Why do you think some people are informed by moments like that and others are defined by moments like that? And then how do you let go of this sense that you're trying to prove everyone wrong. Because I can tell you there have been numerous moments in my life where I feel a lot of my accolades, achievements, and accomplishments have been at certain moments driven by this need to prove a bunch of people wrong, like people who, relationships that didn't work out, you know, teachers who think I'd amount to nothing. Same story. Yeah. Uh, so those are the two questions. Why are some people informed by moments like that and others defined by them? And then how do you let go of that sense that you're trying to prove people wrong? You know, I mean, the first quote, that's very difficult. I, I, I don't know why certain people are informed by moments like that and others are defined. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I think in my case in particular, I have always been, it's the last inch that I won't give up. You know, like I'm not necessarily courageous, um, but I am defiant, you know. And that, that's like, you know, and, and those are, those are wildly different positions. And, and, and even in terms of stance, like combative stance, like that's wildly different. A courageous person leans in, right? They're going in for the fucking punch. They're, they're running right up to the enemy. I don't know that I'm that, you know, I don't know that I'm that, but at the, at, like I am 
at the very least, like dig your heels in, like that last inch, I won't give up. I will not give up. The last inch of my life is mine. The la- and I've had a few of these moments in my life where I don't have the courage to fight, but I do have the bravery to stick in my fucking heels and no matter what happens, I'm not going to give up that last inch. And and I think that that's important for, for several people because there are people much more courageous than I am, you know, certainly out there in life that, you know, barrel through life very, you know, with, with a sense of purpose at all times, right? They, they always had a sense of purpose or they, they, they'll just go through and fucking, you know, right at the battle, right? I'm not, the, I have not always been that way historically. Um, but defiance is something that I don't think is talked about enough. And I think that's the difference, right? I mean, I think, I think that will probably, if I was, if I was pressed to it, the difference would be in defiance because people that get railed against are usually people that are marginalized anyway. I certainly was, mm-hmm. you know, I was marginalized and usually when you're marginalized, you're up against the fucking rails anyway. You're right. You're, you're right on the, on the, on the edge of what's acceptable. Right. But that moment for me, that was, that was her trying to push me across the edge. You don't belong here. You know, you don't belong here. You don't belong in the life that you think that you belong. You don't, you're not, you're not one of us, whatever us meant to her, right? You're not, you know, you're, you're out there. And that was a, that was a moment. I've had a few of those moments in my life, but that moment I wasn't willing to be pushed across the line. Now I was only an inch from the fucking line, (laughs) but I wasn't, I wasn't willing to be pushed across the line. And I think that, I think that's an important distinction. And, and I hope that, that people, and, and, and it may sound confusing, but I hope people will see the distinction between courage and defiance. Um, because I certainly don't consider myself a courageous person, uh, you know, at, at all, or a fearless person. I may, you know, I, 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 but I do consider myself a defiant person, but I think a defiant stance actually is, is a very, like that's, that's what makes a life in many times because a lot of times we don't have. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. 
But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Have the strength to fight, you know? A lot of times we don't, we, we've been, you know, you're emotionally thrashed. You don't, you've taken hit after hit, loss after loss. You feel it. It's palpable. You don't, you don't have the fucking strength to muster to get up for a fight. But, you know, can you just stay standing until you can't see straight anymore? Like, will you just stick? And that's, that's, that's. Um, so sorry to hamper on about that, but that, that I think is an important distinction. Um, and then your second question, which I, I've now forgotten. Serenity. No worries. Uh, how do you let go of that sense that you need to prove all these people wrong? Yeah. The, the, I mean, that, that's, that's a bit more difficult. You know, I don't, th- <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like, I wish, you know, you know, you and I have these conversations and we have them on air, but also we have them together, you yeah. know, we're just hanging out and have drinks or whatever. And it's, and, and I'm always, I tr- always try to be honest about these things. I, I don't want to pretend to be some fucking rockets. You know, I'm not Tony rock. I don't have no idea. You know, like there are certain things that have happened to me in my life where I'm just very grateful to be out of it. 
um, in that moment, uh, I, you know, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I realized very late into the game that I had allowed my entire life to become about decisions that were polluted from the, from the very beginning. And that was fucking scary, dude. You know, when I was into an incredibly successful career in finance in New York City, I mean, you can't get any better in that world than where I was at that age. You know, you really, in terms of position, you can't. But to be there and then, but to, to be there and to be sad, you know, not, not to be there and to be happy that you proved everybody wrong and you're making 10 times as much money as fucking Miss Mitchell and any of the other clowns that you used to know. Like, you know, not, there was no happiness. There was no gloating. There was no kind of – it was just sadness. And every degree of success that I had in addition to that, I just felt more sad. I was just more sad. I mean, it, you, you, the thing about it is like the thing about success is like if you're if you were if you're succeeded something that you fucking hate, then you hate yourself more and more at every turn for being good at the thing that you fucking despise. You know, it's it's diminishing returns. It really fucking is. But there's no way. You, there are no other choices. I didn't have any other choices. I wasn't given any other choice. In my I didn't know what the choices were. My only choice was. To prove everybody wrong tonight. And so like I was lost, dude. I was lost. And I was lost. And 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 the worst bit of it was when I recognized that I was in a prison of my own creation, that I had like I was incarcerated, but but the, the, the door was locked from the inside and I was the one holding the key. Like I I was I was the one who who did this whole thing. It was it was it was a profoundly depressing thing because I didn't know where to go from there. You know, and in my particular case, I had, I, you know, I had this moment and I think a lot of us have these moments actually, but, um, I, I, you know, I had a particular moment where it's like, I recognize that if I did not leave that day at that moment that I was going to be this dude for the rest of my life, you know, that I was going to, I was going to live some other fucking dude's life. For the rest of mine. I mean, people hear that and it sounds like I get it. Like I hear, you know, it sounds very hallmarky. It sounds like something that you could put on an Instagram fucking photo and it might get a few <laughs> likes, but it's like, it's the fucking truth. Like that was actually, that's my life. That is my fucking life, man. Like I'm looking at it and I'm like, if I don't... I have to leave everything, dude. I have to leave everything. I have to I have to leave Miss Mitchell behind. I have to leave all these clowns behind. I have to leave and in addition to that, everything after that because the route was polluted. So I have to leave my educational history, my career up to that point. I had nothing else, man. I had no other opportunities. I had no network. I don't have any family to speak of that knew anybody in any fucking corners of the world. I was fucking finished if I left that world. When I left, I remember my boss yelling at me, you'll never fucking work in this town again. It was a very New York moment. You know? <laughs> He's like, just never fucking work in this town again. You know, it was just like, but it was like, I, you know, I just burned every fucking bridge. So, you know, it's difficult for me. I don't want to proselytize. I don't want to. There are people out there that are wiser than I. And those people might have 
you know, those individuals might, might, might have been able to figure out this situation prior to being in it like I was. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, then I have to say like that, that was, I needed that moment in order to recognize the fact that, man, I did this to myself. I did this to myself, but the, the greatest verity in that, this sage wisdom that came from that, which we all know, but we, we know at different points in life that came about for me is the fact that you always have a choice. You always have a fucking choice, you know? And the, the most important fucking thing that I learned on that day, honestly, Srini, and, and, and this was, you know, and I don't know if this, I hope that this will be valuable for you. I don't know. To me, it was very, it was, it was the most important lesson I learned in my life that, that I mean, that in that day was that, that this life is mine and that it is my one and only. And that's it. When that, when, when, when the subtlety and the, and the profundity and the, the reality of that statement seeps into your fucking bones. And when it ceases to be esoteric, poetic, hippie bullshit, when the pragmatism and the practicality of the fact that you're going to fucking die, you're going to die. This is what you have. This is it. This is what we have right now, right now. Then all the Miss Mitchells, right, and all the and everyone before her, and all the like, all that shit, that baggage that we have, all these fucking people that told us what fucking you know losers we were going to be in our life. All that completely gets faded away in the fact that this is it, man. This is all I have. These decisions are mine, not hers. I'm not going to relinquish that fucking type of power to her or to anybody else. And that, that, I think, for me, like, I needed that moment. And again, there's people much smarter than I am, but, like, I needed that moment in order to come to that conclusion, you know? Sorry, I, I feel like I'm rambling, but... No, not at all. This is phenomenal. Uh, so one other question uh, around this mindset piece, and this actually comes from a quote uh, from The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit, uh, which is a collection of essays that you wrote, which is how you and I met, and I'll link that up for anybody listening in the show notes, uh, the greatest obstacle any of us in the developed world have to living a remarkable life is not outside pressure or finances. It's not economics or market conditions. It's the lack of courage to question the devils in our own mind that tells tell us we're not special enough. What I'm really interested in, in hearing is how you start to quiet the devil in your mind and realize you're special enough. You pretend. You know, you pretend. Like... <laughs> You know, the, the Shakespeare said it best, man. You know, people ask me this shit all the time. And they're like, well, how do I start to do so? I don't believe in myself. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm starting this thing. And look, you fucking fake it. You pretend. Shakespeare, and, and this is one of the mo- I mean, Sha- I learned so much from Sha- William Shakespeare. So much from reading the plays and being involved in theater and, you know, Luckily, in, in, in my 20s, because, because of a man who helped save my life, and one thing that he said always sticks with me, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. In this world, like many times, when you don't have, when you don't act, when you aren't actually the thing, 
you just have to act like you are. You know, you just have to act like you are. And we know this of novels, right? We know this in terms of adventure. We know this of story. Like when an adventure starts out on an adventure, and in a story that we actually appreciate, you know, say Frodo, right? When Frodo leaves the Shire, he doesn't feel like Frodo. He doesn't feel like the Frodo who's flicking the fucking ring into Mount Doom. That's not the same Frodo. He's faking it. He's pretending at that moment like he – all he's doing and all that we need to do is like, you know, you, you, you think about a story and you think about the life that you want to lead. and You think about the character that you want to be in that life, right? And in the moments when you don't have the courage to actually be that character and to make the decisions that that character would make, you just pretend and you just act it anyway. You do it anyways. You see what I mean? Uh-huh. That, that to me is like – and it's, it, it's kind of one of these great and, and, and unspoken verities in life because people see those that succeed or do well in life. But the one thing that those do, that, that do well in life and succeed, they don't sometimes come back and say is the fact that I was fucking faking it for a very long time and everybody was doing it. Everybody's doing it. Because there are plenty of times in my early, I mean, when I, oh my God, Srini, when I left my fucking job, man, and when I, when I took to travel the world and I started misfitting all this, dude, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I was terrified half the time. I was terrified. Absolutely mortified, man. And many of the times when I was making decisions and trying to, you know, like, where would we go and what would you do and this and that, like, I was absolutely mortified. But like so many of the characters and the stories that I admired through the ages as a kid, in those moments when I feared the worst, I stiffen my upper lip and I, I you just pretend. You pretend to be the per- – you sit down at the typewriter. You think about the novel that you want your life to be. You think about the character that you – the protagonist that you are in that novel, the person that you want to be. And you start acting like that person before you are that person. And sooner or later, the person that you want to be and the person that you are will merge into one. Sooner or later, that will happen. And that's you know, a little bit of what William Shakespeare taught me. Amazing. Uh, well, I want to talk about your work uh, for the rest of our conversation, uh, especially because it's had such a profound impact on everything uh, that I have done ever since I've met you. Uh, there's a level of thoughtfulness and deliberateness to literally everything I've seen you create. Um, but, you know, I, I hope in some way I inherited and stole from you. Uh <laughs> And made my own in certain areas. But what I really want to talk about is the early days of all of this and how you eventually arrived at uh, this way of, of seeing the world, this way of creating things and this very sort of deliberate ethos in every single thing that you choose to work on and put out into the world, which I realize is a massive fucking question, which we could talk about for three hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you should <laughs> yeah. expect that by now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, you know, it is it is a big question. It is a big question. I will say that um, Misfit, um, you know, today today Misfit is a, is is you know it's a collection of six different companies, and I employ 
dozens of people across the world. And that to me is very fucking weird, my friend, because as you know, 90% of what I own fits on my fucking back. And I am still the guy that I always have been. And it should probably be illegal that I should employ that many people. And that's, you know, but from that whole, everything the misfit is today, anything that somebody researches, looks into it, and now we're doing films and we got a digital agency that works internationally in our publishing house and blah, 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 and all this fucking horse shit. All <laughs> that was born out of that decision that day to, and that decision was not to start a company. It wasn't like, oh, I'm leaving my, you know, I'm leaving this company and I'm going to start my own company. That decision was to live to, to for once and for all, stop living some other dude's life. To live a life that was deliberate, that was intentional, and that was flamboyantly mine. And that, it, that is the, that is absolutely the fucking foundation and the premise of everything that misfits built on and i am not i mean you know that that has i it has never left me not for a single solitary moment not for a single solitary moment so when i do something when i get involved in a different industry you know whether it's publishing or filmmaking or you know a digital world or or, or humanitarian work and now we're getting into different things in the physical world, products and all that. When I get when I get involved into something, I always for me from an artistic perspective, it has to be it it has to be a a a a, a deliberate decision on me and 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 you know my crew, you know, Melissa and Jesse and, and the people on my team, Sibo and Dino, like our our decision to to do this thing. And to and whatever it might be, and then to intentionally move in it. And from a design perspective, if I'm going to get involved in it, then I'm going to get involved all the way. I'm not interested in making. I I've said on the record, mates, I'm not interested in personal wealth. I'm not interested in fame. And and many decisions that I make prove that I don't care. That is not something that interests me. I am not even interested in being successful. What I am interested in is being significant. So and that those two sometimes are wildly perpendicular goals. So when it comes to you know creating something, when people you know and I and I appreciate that you know the the, uh, the conference that we produce, you know MisfitCon and all this, you know people say very kind things about our work, and I really appreciate that. Some people ask me, well, why don't you scale this? Why don't you scale that? You know, I, I look at them, I'm like, I'm a banker, man. Like like I don't know about scaling. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody really pinned me against the wall a few months ago and they were, and they were asking me about our, you know, our conference, this conference we produce in Fargo, North Dakota, MisfitCon. Uh, Srini's has been a couple times. We always have a good time out there, you know? And, and uh, you know, the conference has no website. So there's no evidence that the thing is happening. There's no evidence that the thing happened other than a few Instagram photos that people shoot up. My crew, in terms of our content, we put nothing out. It's it is a you know for me it's a quiet and deliberate event, and it's 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 invite only. So I invite people that I meet throughout my travels. Through I travel to twenty twenty five countries a year, and I and I invite people that I meet and people that I think that would be interesting. And then I and then we kind of design a five day experience. I was asked, well, why don't you? Well, you know, 
and and I've I've been pressed against this. You know, why don't why don't you scale up? Why don't you this? Why don't you that? You could do this. You can make more money. Blah blah. blah. You lose thirty thousand dollars in the event, but you you don't have to because I'm like, I just looked at this person. I'm like, you know, I used to be in finance, right? You know, I have degrees in accounting and finance. I graduated a fucking summa cum laude. Like I, you know, I know how to do math. You know, like it's not like it's not like it's like oops, I I lost you know thirty thousand dollars. For me, it's a deliberate choice. It's an intentional. I want to keep it small. Now, by keeping it small, there are there are you know there's collateral damage. Sometimes that collateral damage is to my pocketbook, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to make that investment for the belief in the thing that I'm creating, right? And that and that to me is okay. And actually, I think there's precedent for that fact because every artist, visual artist under the sun since time immemorial, has limited. The amount of of the works that they produce, right? Some you see in the bottom right corner, you see one of eighty, one of twenty, sometimes one of one, right? Those are arbitrary limitations that they produce. I mean, in this day and age, it could be one of a trillion. I mean, you know, it's it, you could just keep on printing things, you know, until until the, the printer runs out of ink, and even then, it's a digital print. You could continue going. But, but artists continue to do, and it's an arbitrary limitations. I believe in arbitrary limitations because arbi- the only thing that you have are the limitations that you, that, that you place on yourself, sometimes your art. You know, My favorite restaurateur in the world is a guy named Frank Perciano on the Lower East Side. He owns four, restaurant, four Italian restaurants within six blocks of one another in the Lower East Side East Village. Now, Frank, surely, smart guy, fucking brilliant restaurant tour. These, I mean, if you go to Sauce in the Lower East Side, if you are in the Lower, if you're in New York City, then you better go to Lower East Side. You better go to Sauce Restaurant. It is the best restaurant in New York City. You go, you sit in the bar. It's fucking amazing. I am sure that people have asked him, "Well, why don't you scale this?" Surely, he could build the next Olive Garden, but that's that's not what Frank is interested in. What Frank is interested in is creating small and meaningful moments of interaction that are intentionally and deliberately created by his own mind, and that's okay. So, again, I've rambled on, but that, that to me, is an important distinction. Now, I don't think that it's bad that other people decide to scale. I don't think that that's a bad thing, if that's what you intended to do in the first place. But don't be bullied into that. You know, that's the one thing I want to hear. I, I hope that your listeners are here. It's not, I'm not railing against like, you know, f- you know, I fucking love Apple, right? I'm, I'm talking to you on a back <laughs> air. You know, like I've got, I'm literally, you know, masturbating to my iPhone 6S right now. Like it's, it, you know, we're all, we, we, you know, so there are, there are elements of, of free market capitalism and scalability that, I myself am, am involved. So I'm not, I'm not decrying all of that. But what I'm saying is for me and my life, I, I question that and I say, well, I'm not necessarily interested in all that. Mm-hmm. There are certain decisions that I'll make that are more you know, revenue-based and depending on the business that we get involved in. But other things that you know, are humanitarian work, which I've burned hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last few years. And that's okay for me. You know? And the main thing is you know, if if you're good at what you do, the current will always take you downstream. It will always, it, you will always move with the current if you're good at what you do, because people are going to want more of it. They're going to want more, like you, Serenity. They're going to want more of your writing and more of your books and more of you and more of your conferences and more of all the stuff that you put out there. That's okay if that's what you want. But maybe you say with your next book, for whatever reason, you wake up and you're like, you know what, I actually. 
only want to produce 500 of these books and I want them to be fucking pop-up books that have like all these things coming out of them and the, you know, that look like spaceship, you know, whatever. Like, but you're, you know, you're the artist, so that's okay. That's, you know, fine, fine. So you lose, you know, you know, the opportunity cost of 60 fucking thousand dollars of whatever, but that's, that is okay. You know, that's okay. And that's, that's what I think is important for people to hear. You know, and with Misfit, it's like I'm never going to be famous, man. I'm never going to be famous. I'm not looking for fame. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is not success. I'm interested in significance. So I want to ask you uh, if this level of deliberate thoughtfulness and, and the quality of what you do uh, was what it was when you started. Because I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've always been curious about that. And I've seen almost nothing from the early days of what you guys have done. Because I hide it, man. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no, I, I don't like you know the, the thing about quality and is is an artisanship. You get better over time, mm-hmm. right? So there are things that you know I look back at, which I'm sure we all <laughs> we all do. But I'll just talk about myself. You know, I look back at the say I design circa 2009 that I thought was hot shit back then and now I look at it I'm like what in the fuck were you thinking that is horrible so I mean there there is an element of that you know and you get better at your craft the more time you invest into it um as a designer you know whether that's as a designer of experiences um with events which I've produced many at this point or um you know visual uh, design, I you know I've I've gotten better over time. So I I <laughs> I would I would be lying to you, Sri, if I said I wouldn't lie to a friend. Mm. I would certainly lie if you were anyone else. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, that you know that that like somehow like you know, I was you know we were just born out of the womb and I, I was just amazing from there. Absolutely not. I fucking I was horrible, but I was always. You know, and still to this day, you know, whenever we produce anything or I, you know, I produce anything at all, my inclination is never to focus on the positives, you know, no matter how much praise I receive from it or no matter how much praise, you know, we as, as a company get from the things that we do, you can ask any of my, my, my crew, you know, like I am always focused on like, wow, that's great. And that's wonderful that people are saying that, but don't believe that. Don't believe the hype because here's like, don't even lie to me. Could we have done this better? Could we have done that better? What about this? What about that? So it's this constant improvement, you know, um, and an improvement of the craft. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's for the sake of the work. When you don't, when you're not working for money, when you're not doing something simply because of the output you get out of it then the virtue of creating beautiful things is because beautiful things is what the world deserves. So you end up doing that and investing yourself more into those moments, irrespective of whether – I mean there have been times when we've printed something where everyone thought it was fucking fantastic. I mean universal like positive praise, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, fucking hell. You know, it just, it just was off-center just a little bit. You know, it's just a little bit. It was off, and then the fucking you know. And I'm getting, I get the praise and all this, but I know, I know that we could have done better. You know, so that kind of plays into it a bit. Mm-hmm. 
levels of insanity that I've inherited from both you and Greg Hartle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so one last question around your creative process and then we'll wrap things up. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that you've talked about throughout our conversation is various artistic influences like Shakespeare um, and also culture. Um, so two questions, you know, one, what have been the big artistic influences in your life and how has uh, being, being of Cuban descent uh, and the culture that you've brought with that influenced and shaped the work that you do today? Yeah, I mean, I'll speak to, I mean, in terms of being Cuban, I, that's hugely influential, I think, in my life. Um, and I think, there, you know, there are little elements of any subculture, of any culture, but, but you know, just speaking of Cuban culture, there's, it's funny, I was in an Uber ride today with a guy who, had, who was full-blooded Cuban, he had just came from Cuba 10 years ago, and we were, you know, kind of talking about Cuban culture and this and that. And there's this one phrase which he immediately got. Um, and he was, cause I was talking, he was asking me what I do and I was telling him a bit about my story actually. And he was like, man, that's, you know, that's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And I, and I looked at him and I was like, you know, my Cuban grandmother, I would always come back no matter what was going on in my life. I would come back to my Cuban grandmother, Mirta Jimenez. And I'd always go back to her and I'd tell her, Hey, you know, she'd ask me, she is no dude. She, strange, she's never used a fucking computer in her life. She had no fucking clue what the fuck I was talking about or, you know, what I was doing. She thought it was this magical, the iPad was like a magical light box, like a wizardry box the first time I showed one to her. So she has no clue at anything relating to my world whatsoever. But every time I come back, I tell her, Nanita, you know, estoy haciendo esto, la otra, whatever. And I tell her a little bit about what we're doing. And then she'd, Look at me stoically with a you know with a smile on her face, but stoically, and she'd say "Echa palante, mijo, echa palante," which means keep moving forward. Whether it was bad news or the, whether it was good news, one thing Cuban culture you always no matter what you always put one foot in front of another. You keep on moving, and that is certainly you know certainly played deeply deeply into my life. That mentality of uh, you just you know. Nunca pares, like, you keep on, you keep on putting one foot in front of another. Um, and then in terms of artistic influences, my God, man, so many, you know, there's so many, uh, definitely, uh, the work of, you know, uh, Keith Haring, who was a street artist in the 1980s in New York city was, uh, very influential in my life. Probably, I mean, definitely in many, many people's lives, Keith Haring, Basquiat, um, you know, I mean, I don't say this lightly, but. But but Picasso, I mean Da Vinci. I was I, I went, you know, I was in Venice about th four years ago, and I went to a Da Vinci exhibition. But it wasn't Da Vinci's finished works; it was Da Vinci's sketchbooks. So it showed all his works in progress, and some of which were um, military weapon. I mean, it was like it, it was just like a side of Da Vinci I'd never seen, and it showed this kind of the, you know the first Renaissance man, right? Um, you know, so there's a lot. There, there's a lot of ancients that had, you know, Henry V, uh, uh, Julius C. You know, there's there's a lot of ancients that had great great impact on, um, at least their their work, their words had on my life. Yeah. So you actually brought up another question that I realized I probably should have asked earlier in a conversation. But when you mentioned your grandmother, it, it made me think about this. Uh, throughout the entire process of, of Misfit and this crazy quest that you've been on uh you know you mentioned always put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward 
have there been any major setbacks, like moments of just absolute terror at where you're mired in panic, fear, anxiety, self-doubt, like things, you know, seeming like they were going to blow up in your face? Fuck yes. Oh my God, yes. There, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, the, yes. There, was, there are plenty of moments where, um, where I thought all was lost, you know, where I sincerely believed that there was no way out and that I was, I was finished and that I was the great, you know, that I would be proven to be the greatest fraud of all, which was my greatest fear for a very, very long time. That, that actually, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't this guy and I couldn't do these things and everything that I believed about myself was a lie and that I, that, and that I was, you know, I was a jester and I was the greatest fool of all. Plenty of moments. I mean, there was one time in particular back in 2010 um, when I was sitting in Winston, in the Winston Churchill Park in Prague and a few things had gone wrong with some projects that we were working on. And I mean, we were like, you know, it was just at the time it was me, Melissa, and my buddy Dino and Misfit, and that was it. And a couple things had gone wrong. And then there was an accounting error that had happened that double counted revenue. And then all of a sudden, so I thought that I had double of what I had, which was nothing. It was like three thousand dollars. It was it was literally like it was mice nuts. But at the time it was like feast or famine. You know, and and then I realized when I looked into it, oh my god! Not only don't we have this myopic little bit of revenue that I thought that we had, but we are actually negative right now. I have no money. I have no way of paying my my crew, and it, it was Dino and Drum at the time, and MLS. I this month, I also have I personally I have no way to get out of Prague, and. I don't know how I'm going to get back home. I don't know, like, you know, I'm I'm at this B&B and, you know, I've got a couple more nights there. And and I remember I sat on a bench with Melissa um, in in the Winston Winston Churchill statue in Prague. And I've been there since. And it was a a big moment of victory two years ago when I went back and I was like, fuck, I'm still alive. I can't believe it. And I just sat there and I thought to myself, we're done. And I looked at Melissa for the first time ever. I had seen a little bit of hope deteriorate in her eyes. And it was, it was sincerely depressing. And, and then I said, <laughs> and I looked at her, I'm like, look, we got 20, I forget what it was at the time. I, I, they weren't euros because they weren't on the euro yet. But it was like Corona. I don't know what the fuck it was. <laughs> and I was like, look, <laughs> this is all we have. Let's go get a beer. And, and let's figure out a way out of this. And when we did, and we went to go get a beer, and it was called, you know, Master's Beer in English. And, uh, and we had a couple beers, and we figured out, you know, this, you know, this plan to get back to England, which at the time was kind of home, and do a couple things. And, you know, and, dude, five, you know, five years later, um, I'm still standing. So... It's, you know, it, uh, yeah, the, and, and that's not the only moment. And I don't say that to you just as a funny story. You know, I, I, I think that we don't talk enough about the times that things didn't work out. And we don't talk about, we don't talk enough about the times that we were afraid. Yeah. 
Um, and the fact that, you know, we haven't, you know, I haven't always, anyone who looks at my work today, I haven't always been this guy, you know, I haven't, I, I was, I was made into this guy by believing and faking myself into it. And then here I am, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that, that is, that's, that's a really important, I think, uh, lesson for people to, for, for people to ruminate on, particularly that are at the beginning of their journey. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate the, you know, you saying that we don't talk about these moments enough, uh, you know, cause I've had my own all is lost moments. I mean, we canceled an event that was devastating. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, this has been incredible. So I have one final question, uh, okay. for you, okay. uh, which is how we wrap up everything. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh man, that is such a good question. God, I wish I had a better answer. Um, or I wish I had a packaged answer. <laughs> uh, I, so, and I know I've said this a couple times in this interview, but I think that what makes an individual unmistakable is when they make a deliberate decision to make, to, to ensure that this one and only life that they possess is flamboyantly theirs. When they, when you are okay, when you are okay, not only with who you are, but with being flamboyantly you, then of course you'll be unmistakable. And there are no competitors at that point. Because the one thing, the one thing that we know for sure, Srini, is that in all of human history, in all of human history, there has never been a solitary other person with your genetic makeup, your DNA construct, your social, social economic upbringing, anything that makes you you has never happened before, will never happen again. It has only happened this one time in you as a unique person. We all talk about unique selling proposition. What do we need to make? You know, when we recognize that you are your own unique selling proposition, as long as you recognize who you are, not only are you okay with it, but you are flamboyantly that, of course you'd be unmistakable. Incredible and poetic, as I expected it would be. <laughs> uh, it's fun. It fun hanging out with you, as always. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming back and subjecting yourself to my crazy questions. <laughs> it's always a blast, man. Next time yeah. we got to, next time we got to do it live and yes. overcome. In person, for sure. Uh, This has been phenomenal. Um, And I I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and, uh, you know, share so much of your story with our listeners. You're welcome, man. It's, it's, It's a pleasure as always, my friend. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Monday on The Unmistakable Creative. I think equally important is passive training. Uh, And this comes back to the role that you allow distractions to play in your life. And a key observation that, that several different strains of, of scientific literature have, have emphasized uh, is that if during most of your day, your attention is constantly shifting around and shifting towards stimuli that are novel and interesting. So you know, if you have a moment's boredom, you always check Facebook real quick or you mm-hmm. shoot through your cycle of Facebook, Twitter, Feedly, email, okay, back to what I'm doing. If you have those type of cycles, uh, you're actually weakening your executive center's ability to, to resist distraction and focus when you need it. 
Author and Professor Cal Newport returns to the show to discuss his new book and the concept of deep work. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.